This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, I'm Katie Perfacci with Stories of Win, and I'm here today with Rocio Servin, uh, who is a postdoc in the Pataputian lab at Scripps Research, but she is on the job market now applying for faculty positions. Uh, it is wonderful to have you here. Thank you very much for the invitation. So we always start by asking our interviewees about their neuroscience origin story. So how did you first become interested in science in general and also in the nervous system in particular? I honestly don't remember a particular time in which I was like, I am interested in science. I think that I was always, I don't know, curious and I could enjoy like things about nature and animals and so on probably because my dad is a biologist and also oh. my mom yes so but they are more on the like field side so we would go to the forest we would so he or my dad works with wolves so we would oh my god so cool <laughs> okay maybe i'll do a full disclosure before i say start saying i didn't know that so many times um i do know Rocio, and i work with her in the same lab but i'm already learning so many things that i didn't know um, we felt so cool yes it was very nice i loved wolves when really? i was a kid yeah i didn't know <laughs> I think it's like from a storybook, but yeah, I, oh, loved, I loved wolves. Me too. Well, <laughs> now that you say the storybooks, the uh, what's the story that Red? Oh, Red Riding, Little Red Riding Hood. So when I was apparently, <laughs> this is like a legend in my family. But when I was a kid, like in kindergarten, and when the teachers would tell that story, I would get like upset, and I would say, <laughs> "The wolf is not bad." Oh, no. <laughs> and. And for the teachers, it was so weird that they call my parents, like, what is going on at your house? <laughs> uh, but science. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think that is uh, because of that. I, I yeah, I, I always liked it and enjoyed it. And then at some point, I guess, when I was, when I reached the time to choose, like, a career, um, I was between biology and medicine, but still, it's Is like... Is this like end of high school? Yes, okay. uh -huh, end of high school. Um, yeah, and then I chose biology I almost like, not randomly, but it was probably like a gut feeling. Yeah. And then I was so happy when I did it. Like when I started to know, because I studied general biology, when I started to know like things about evolution and even plants and animals and everything I really enjoyed it and I felt that there was like a huge world that was opening in front of me so yeah and neuroscience so I I honestly don't consider myself a neuroscientist but I I also remember that I would be always like very interested and curious about it. And at some point I thought about 
studying that, but I mean, in Mexico, in my university, I didn't know any lab that would, that would study that. So, I mean, I'm sure that there are labs, um, but at that moment, I didn't find anything that would fit and would accept me. <laughs> yeah. But it was, I think, like something that was always on, yeah, in my mind. And at the end, how I entered maybe through uh, to neurosciences because I started actually studying ion channels. Right. So okay. then they go together. <laughs> yeah. So did you do research during university too? Yes. Yeah. So in Mexico, I am from Mexico. <laughs> Uh, in Mexico, you actually have to do a thesis in undergrad. Okay. So you need to do like a like a research project. So I was in a lab doing that project for like maybe one year and a half, mm -hmm. and then I wrote a thesis, and then after that, I started my masters in the same thesis in the same lab. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was. And so what, what was that already ion channels or yes, okay. yes, not electrophysiology, but yes, ion channels. So we were studying. Uh, the ion channels in sperm. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> yes. You had some uh, background in sperm biology. Yes. But... <laughs> yeah, it oh, was fun. So, that's so different and interesting. Yes, it is. It's actually very different just because, uh, I mean, the sperm cells have to get rid of like a lot of like proteins and everything to just carry like the essential thing. Um, it's very difficult to find, for instance, like a knockout or, mm. a, or a, a, yeah, like a protein, a carrier that you can use as a model to then knock out something just because they get they rid get of so many everything. things. Exactly. <laughs> so that's, I think also like a big challenge in the field. Super interesting. <laughs> um, so then you... When, for your PhD, um, you went to Germany. Uh, so how how did you decide to move there for your PhD? Yeah, so I, I mean, of course, I enjoyed a lot the experience in the lab in Mexico, but at, I was also like, okay, I want to know something else. And I think that I also wanted to know, so, I don't know, in Mexico, we try to do the best with what we have, right? And people is also very proud of like the creativity to just still be able to study like problems, scientific problems with like not many resources. But I think that I was also like curious about like what would be to <laughs> science with more resources because yeah. now I also see that that makes a huge difference yeah. um, in terms of yeah the experiments that you can do but also in the questions that you can ask yeah absolutely so I did not have this clarity at that time <laughs> but there was like something in me that I was like I want to know like what is out there. And I don't know why, like Germany or the Max Planck Institute is very famous in the institute where I did uh, my undergrad. Uh, that, I mean, I applied to Germany and I also applied to other places, 
but it was in Germany where I got like an interview mm -hmm. and it was an amazing opportunity that I was able to go there to talk with like the professors and uh, to visit the city because that was yeah. the first time that I visited Berlin and I mean I think that I was super super lucky <laughs> because the city is amazing and then I also like met a like a professor that had like very interesting projects so I was yeah I was able yeah, to go that there. Yeah sounds like the decision was easy in the <laughs> yes, end. Yeah. Very easy. <laughs> awesome. Um, so what what was the interesting project? So what did you study during your PhD and also what did you discover because Yes, we want to hear not only the question, but also what you found. <laughs> yes, so I studied chondrocytes, which are the cells that produce cartilage. Um, and I think that I was also very lucky because I started my PhD in 2012. Okay. Which means that PSOs have been described just two years before. I started my PhD. So we already knew that we wanted to study the like mechanosensitive functions of chondrocytes. Okay. Um, yeah, just for the audience who may not know, uh, piezos are mechanosensitive uh, ion channels that, that, that we study. We, we both study now. <laughs> but, yes. yes. Uh, so I think like not only in chondrocytes, but, so, but almost in every cell type or in every system, there was like this big question that, okay, this system, for this system, mechanosensation is important, which is the mechanosensor? Uh, so yes, I, I try to answer that question, but not so much at the physiology level like we are doing now. It was more like, in the like at the cell level so it was really like doing electrophysiology like knocking down channels uh and so on so what i am saying that i was very lucky is because i think that i had the opportunity to still kind of try to answer very fundamental questions about these ion yeah, channels everything was still so new <laughs> exactly so my i think yeah my discovery was so there is another ion channel the name is trip before and and this ion channel is controversial <laughs> in the in terms of its mechanosensitivity so uh what I did is I use a very um, new and specific way to do mechanical stimulation while doing also electrophysiology, so recording the mechanosensitive currents of the cells. And in this case, what we would use is this um, PDMS or small um, flexible columns, like made out of like a soft plastic. Okay. And then the cells could be seated on top. And what we would do is just move one of these little com columns ah. like from underneath and that would be the mechanical stimulation. And we I found out that this was the only um 
the only scenario in which 3B4 could be activated. Okay. Um, we know that PSO is a professional <laughs> mechanosensor. <laughs> so PSO1, that is the other mechanosensitive ion channel expressed in chondrocytes, um, PSO would be like activated with this method that we call pillar arrays, also with just uh, indentation of the cell mm -hmm. and with like pressure also like applying pressure on the cell. Uh, so that was a big thing. And we and that also gave us some information, right? That for instance, that probably means I could not figure that out, but like one of our questions after like my thesis and everything is like probably try V4 need something either in the cytoskeleton or maybe extracellular matrix. Um, that is necessary, so it mm. can be mechanically activated. Uh, but it was, I think, like very like good to be able to compare the responses of both ion channels, and yeah, kind of being able to say, okay, this one responds in this scenario, and this one in this other scenario. And then if we think a little bit more about the function of chondrocytes. These cells also like are exposed to a bunch of different mechanical forces. So imagine, I don't know, if you jump or if you are walking or just our own weight, right? So mm -hmm. all of those um, scenarios can induce shear stress or just compression, compression yeah. or things like that. So we tried to kind of mimic um, these situations. Cool. <laughs> and so is that sort of how you ended up getting, I'm guessing that's how you ended up getting interested in mechanosensation and sort of is was part of the draw then that there were so many fundamental questions that are still yes. unanswered. And exactly. And also that in my undergrad, I studied also ion channels, but mainly that were ligand gated. And okay. that type, like we know a lot about ligand gated ion channels. And probably, they, I mean, there are a bunch that are super important. And I think that, I mean, you also kind of learned those in- Yeah, in your textbooks. Uh -huh. so, yeah. so I think that that kind of makes paradigm in your mind. So when I started to study mechanosensitive ion channels, I was like, oh, they don't need a ligand. <laughs> it's just the environment. It seems so abstract for me. And yeah, that was also super interesting for me. Uh, and because I did such like a cellular and more like fine characterization of these and studies of these ion channels, I really wanted to like go kind of further and try to look at what are their role in physiological systems. Yeah, on a more systemic level. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that segues perfectly into um, your postdoc. So can you tell me a little bit about how you chose your postdoc and and what you what you studied and found. Yes, so I, okay, so I was in Germany where it, it was a great place to do science. There were like 
so much more resources um but i guess that still inside of me i was like okay what is the next like step or maybe probably even like the next like challenge or how can i like improve and also grow as a scientist and i mean looking for different labs of course <laughs> i found our lab <laughs> i didn't even need to look for that one right i read their <laughs> papers <laughs> since i started my phd uh, so i knew that i wanted to keep on studying mechanosensation so yeah that's why i wrote to our boss and then interviewed and everything <laughs> and now i am here <laughs> Well, now you've been here <laughs> yes. and have greatly succeeded here. <laughs> um, so then what did you study for your postdoc? So, I mean, I know, but let's, let's yes. tell our audience. <laughs> so uh, during my postdoc, I, again, I focus on studying the role of these piezo channels, which are mechanosensitive, and it has been proven and also because of a lot of work from our lab, that these ion channels are very important in different physiological systems, right? And because it was already described that they were important in a lot of other functions that I think that are very, like if you think about mechanosensitivity, you are like, of course, touch, right? Or a lung inflation or uh, well, the bladder came later, but <laughs> also the the bladder <laughs> feeling. Um, so I was like, okay, which other organ <laughs> has not been studied and has, according to me, a lot of potential <laughs> of being mechanosensitive? Uh, and yeah, I thought about the gastrointestinal tract. And... Um, yeah, that's how everything started. <laughs> I was, yeah. Yeah, so what did you discover in the gastrointestinal tract? So I I discovered something very interesting. <laughs> so uh, first of all, the gastrointestinal tract is a very important and dynamic system. And because it is so dynamic, it it receives information from a lot of places, right? In terms of neurons from like inside, so there is this enteric nervous system. So like a collection of neurons that are surrounding the gastrointestinal tract. And also extrinsic neurons uh, that we know as dorsal root ganglia neurons and also nodos neurons. Um, and well, also all the nutrients and so on, but I did not focus on that. Yeah. Um, and what I found is that PSO2, it is necessary to regulate the speed of the intestinal contents. And that was surprising on one hand, because normally these cells, the dorsal root ganglia neurons, they have been involved in like sensation from within so like in terms of interception mainly with pain like visceral pain mm -hmm. like belly pain or bladder pain or so on so this was 
like probably one of the first uh, functions in which we were able to relate DRG neurons um, with an internal organ function. Mm -hmm. And like the other surprise was that it was these neurons and not the nodus neurons. So we have this other sensory ganglia that is like at the level of our neck, <laughs> more or less. Mm -hmm. And it is super well studied and very well known that uh, the nodus ganglia mainly innervates all of our internal organs. And it's very important to regulate a bunch of functions. So, and we also know that piezos are expressed there. Mm -hmm. So I thought that maybe it was going to be uh, neurons that express piezo that are in the nodus ganglia, the ones that are regulating uh, any function in the gastrointestinal tract, but no, it was the DRG neurons. So yeah, that was surprising. <laughs> that must have been an exciting like discovery moment when you realized it was the unexpected self. <laughs> yes, yes, it was, it, it took a while to yeah. find out, <laughs> to pinpoint out which neuron was doing the function, but yeah, it was very cool to find out that it was those neurons and also that it was just like this one population. Yeah, super exciting. <laughs> I want to circle back after we've talked about you doing science in in three different countries which I feel like is I mean somewhat unusual um I just wanted to hear whether you have noticed any like major differences in how yeah science happens in different places yes <laughs> like in my experience it was different and like uh, probably like talking about resources, I think that that really makes a difference because of the type of questions that you can answer. And probably that is one of the biggest questions. Pro but <sighs> that doesn't mean that you, cannot, you cannot ask big questions in, okay. I don't know, in other places besides the States, but maybe in terms of the, research that we do <laughs> that requires really a lot of resources mm -hmm. like for that in particular it really made a difference like to be and in my case it was definitely progressive like first we can ask i don't know like these questions i am making a circle in front of me <laughs> that is kind of close to me and then uh, when i went to germany that circle became a little bit bigger and then here uh, it was also nice not only that I was able to ask like bigger questions it was also that it is in the culture and we are encouraged just to ask big questions and almost like any questions and also to think about how can you ask that thing that you want to know so that was for me the main difference. I do think there here in the states there is like a a culture that encourages kind of high risk, high reward um, research, maybe more so than, than yeah. other places. And it's I mean that is definitely cool, but I can also see that 
it is complicated, right? Yeah. Like, not just because it's high risk, high reward, or the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it is, I think, such a great opportunity to be able to do that. Awesome. And so speaking of opportunities to ask and, and answer lots of big, big questions. Um, so you are now applying for faculty positions. Um, I Well, first, how did you how did you decide that you wanted to start your own lab? And were there times during your training where you thought that or like that you thought you might want to do something different? Yes. So that's, I think, an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting question. Because I honestly wanted to have my own research group since I was in undergrad. <laughs> so, so, I, awesome. so I was like, for me, that part was like clear. So it's like, okay, the next one and then the next step. But then, <laughs> uh, probably like halfway of my postdoc, I was, I mean, we all know that sometimes science doesn't work. And I mean, of course, we are people and we are not only living from science and within science, right? Like we also have like a personal life and so on. So things uh, became challenging for me and I really started to question myself whether I want to be in science because I felt that maybe I didn't have the skills like the necessary skills to be um, like a group leader and um, then that that created a like a very big crisis for me because first I was for the first time asking me that after studying <laughs> for so for many so years long. right and also I mean I always saw myself like as a scientist so it was like the first time that I was questioning that and that I was like okay if you don't do that, what would you do? <laughs> so that was super difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about how that type of like, I don't know, imposter syndrome or like doubt would actually could be a lot more traumatizing if you've wanted it for longer um, because it just yes. is like a, it's so much of your identity at yes, that point. Yes, exactly. And I think that probably because I wanted it so much, I also unconsciously went with the idea that like if you leave academia maybe, or I felt it like that, I was like, am I going to be a failure? Mm -hmm. So that was like difficult and it really took me a while to accept that like everything, the questions and so on, it was okay. And that I was not going to be a failure if I decided to leave yeah. academia. And also that I have learned so many things doing science that can be applied to so many other things. 
I also thought like, okay, I did a postdoc. I'm sh I guess that I will, no, not I guess. I was trying to think I will find a job. Yes. <laughs> Things are you going to be fine. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was actually maybe two years or more. That's a long time. Yeah, of thinking about that. Uh, yeah, so after that, I mean, because I'm saying two years, I, I you can also uh, see that it wasn't easy to reach, I guess, like the place in which I am now. That is, yes, I am applying for faculty positions. If I get one, I would be like so happy. <laughs> but if I don't get one, I think that I would be also happy. Yeah. That's... And like three years ago, I if I would say that, I would be like, <laughs> but now I, yeah, I feel like it, it, it doesn't feel scary to think that I won't be that, that, yeah, that I won't get a position. And actually, it's funny now that I am thinking, it probably feels more scary <laughs> if I get a position. That's funny. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, because I think that's really, really helpful for people um, who are, you know, earlier than you are on the track to like hear that that one that it's normal to have doubts but also two that you can get to a place where you can be ha like happy either mm -hmm. way and that it's yeah that we have to stop thinking about like not being in academia as a failure because mm -hmm. it's just like the wrong framing of, yeah of totally things. totally um so, well, now to dive into the scarier <laughs> option of, um, of what is your vision for what you would like to study in in your lab? Uh, so, I I think that I was like super lucky because I found the god. <laughs> uh, I think that is a super interesting system, just because it is so dynamic. I don't know, think about all the nutrients and also all the like foreign agents that enter and and so important in our daily yes, lives. Too. Exactly. <laughs> and and all the time like the god is trying to like maintain their homeostasis, right? Mm -hmm. So um yeah, I I never thought that I could be studying the God, but now I am really fascinated <laughs> and I want to keep studying it. And I think that there is still a lot um, that we don't know in terms of the functions that the sensory neurons, in particular the dorsal root ganglion neurons, are how are they interacting with different cell types in the gut. And of course, which are the physiological functions, and uh, also like, I mean, just because yeah, you said like our gut is very important in our daily life. I think that it's also very easy, and everybody can relate to sometimes. I don't know when you are stressed and you have a different like habits, gastrointestinal habits, right? Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I am also very interested in that question. How is 
emotional stress or psychological stress affecting yeah, yeah. the circuits. Like first, you have these circuits that are trying to keep your gut healthy. So then how, yeah, those stressors dysregulate those circuits. So yeah, that is what yeah. I would like. That's super interesting to think about because I don't, yeah, it's such a thing that you just kind of know forever that like stress can do <laughs> something like that. But yeah, to I don't know anything about the, mm -hmm. the actual mechanism. Exactly. So I think okay. that that would be great. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> super exciting. Um, so then in addition to kind of the, the science aspect of your of your future lab, um, how, how will you approach mentorship and kind of are there aspects of this approach that have been like motivated by your personal experience? So either something that really helped you excel or something that you were missing along the way that you want your trainees to have? Yes. So I think that like right now I have been very lucky because now I am able to have a, that like kind of interaction like mentor mentee with like undergrads a, like this is the first time in which I am able to do that so I think that that is preparing me <laughs> for the future uh, but because of that I think that I can also see the challenges and yeah I think that is important to have clear expectations but I mean that maybe sounds easy but to reach that level I think that uh, there needs to be a very good communication in like between the yeah the mental the mentor partnership and I think that that takes a while and I think that I am learning <laughs> how to do that but I think yeah I guess that if you have that I mean you will have yes of course these clear expectations and probably I'm, I am thinking that because I am also thinking when things go wrong <laughs> um, but I think that if you have good communication within your lab, it is going to be easier to discuss results, to discuss experiments, to come with ideas. So yeah, and the other thing that I consider very important is again, invite uh, my future students to like don't limit themselves in the things that they want to study. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, I think communication is just so important and key in, in so many aspects of, of this career, but really any career. So you've had a very successful journey so far, and we've talked a little bit already about kind of a time when you were facing some doubts, um, but were there, were there any other challenges that you faced during your training um, and sort of how, how did you end up making it through those? Mm -hmm. So, yes, but I think that the interesting part is that those challenges were not in the lab. So, well, if we talk about the lab, I think that 
probably a lot of people feel imposter syndrome and so on, which of course I felt. But um, I think that also your lab outside the lab affects a lot <laughs> your life in the lab. So for me, it was, yeah, the life outside the lab that made my work difficult. Um, yeah, um, I think that also if you are from a different country and you are a newcomer and immigrant, sometimes there is a cultural shock. And in my case, I had it and I didn't expect it because I grew up in Mexico and also in the north of Mexico, which I think that is like very connected uh, to the like states and even more to the south. That is where we live. Yeah, to southern, southern California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I didn't say it before, but we are in southern California. <laughs> yes. And so it was so you're talking about here yes, and not in Germany. Exactly. That was super That's weird. Really interesting. That. Yeah, I was expecting when you started talking about culture shock, I was expecting you to talk about <laughs> Germany. <laughs> yes, I like in retrospect, I am surprised that I didn't have that cultural shock when I arrived to Germany. But also thinking about it, maybe it was because I didn't fully speak the language. So I could not, you know, like fully integrate into the society. And I lived in my like scientist bubble. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So maybe if I spoke and I could understand more things that were happening around me, it would have been different. Uh, but yeah, when I arrived here, uh, it was yeah I had this cultural shock that I did not expect, and the the thing that was more. The, the thing that was more difficult for me to get used to is um, like these like buckets <laughs> that people have in the States, which means that suddenly I needed to like, I had an identity that I didn't know that I have or that I should have, like, which is Latina. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that comes with like stereotypes and so on. But for me, it was like in a very short time, learned like why are these things created or necessary or, or how they exist here. And then like, of course, I pass through, I don't understand, and then I understand, and they, <laughs> I am mad, and so <laughs> yeah. on. And then I think that now I am just in a place in which I am trying to learn as much as possible. Um, yeah, so I can still understand better. But for me, that was very weird, because it's like, I have, like in Mexico, it's like, I am me, I am Rocio. It's not that we don't have problems in Mexico. We have them. They are different. Uh, yeah, so I didn't... It was just very weird for me to learn and accept that I was inside a bucket that I didn't know that existed before. Yeah, mm -hmm. and to learn like what people thought about you without 
<laughs> knowing you at all. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah, I. That must have been really complicating in terms of just like to then focus on sci like science takes so much focus as yes. it is so to have anything distracting you just makes it mm -hmm. yeah because so much harder exactly it sounds like very abstract but somehow for me it was very impressive and and I was thinking a lot about that just because I wanted I guess to understand it and because of that I guess that it also affects uh, my daily life and do you think going forward will it sort of affect I don't know did it inspire you to want to do anything differently as a as a PI to try to yeah I think I think that is very important to be aware of like all the disparities and for instance if I become a PI, I will be in a different position where I can, yeah, like be aware and be like congruent with that and mm -hmm. do something, not only like think about the theory. Right. That you have some power to like mm -hmm. make some change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, and so maybe, um, maybe this could be related or could be completely different. Um, but if you could go back in time and talk to yourself as you were kind of just starting out in your career, um, is there any advice you would give yourself? Yes. And I think that is different. Okay. <laughs> I think that I could say myself, like, it is okay to say no. And I think that also, like, not only it is okay to advocate for yourself, but also, like, motivate little Rocio to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that, I mean... I don't know if you I think that does come more with being a woman that we feel it's harder to say or like yeah we're expected to do other things that mm -hmm. that men like you know in addition to our our science yeah. that men aren't necessarily expected no, to I do. agree and I don't know like I felt I feel that on top of that also again like Talking just from my experience, I think that I also had that upbringing, like, I don't know, be a good girl, you're like, yeah. don't say anything, uh, and so on. So, yeah, I feel that really made, that was, yeah, that really made like a big, um, like, imprint on me and in my brain. And it took me a while to kind of get, like, overcome it. And I think that I'm still working on that. Um, uh, but I think that maybe if I would have someone or if I would have seen a person that would be like, no, it's okay to say no. Or, yeah, like, <laughs> you are also a person, your opinions are valid, like, go for it. Uh, yeah, it could 
have been different. But I'm also okay. <laughs> it sounds very bad. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, hopefully someone listening, there's someone listening who needed to hear that it's okay to say no sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and so uh, we, I like to end the interview sort of with a more fun question. Um so what do you like to do outside of work in science? <laughs> uh, I, so I do pottery. <laughs> I have been doing pottery for... <laughs> you are excellent at it. <laughs> three years, I think. Uh, and I love it. <laughs> and actually, it is also science-related. <laughs> 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 I mean, I was... I started doing poetry. It was before it became famous. <laughs> 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 uh, I think that I've always had something, some artistic inclination. Uh, so I, yeah, when I started doing poetry, it was so like good to be able to build something and then destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then five, not five minutes, maybe <laughs> 30 minutes later, have something else revealed. I mean, we know that science is super slow. Yeah. Yeah. So to like <laughs> see something, to create something in a sitting is like, yeah, very unusual for us as scientists. Yes. So that is the first thing that cut me, like being able to like build something and destroy it and build something again and probably like on the back of my mind that also maybe gave me some idea or strength to be like that also happens yeah in science cool <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about your journey Thank I you. had a lot of fun. <laughs> Me too. We laugh a lot. I know. <laughs> and now we know each other more. <laughs> yes.